Right, can I just say it's a great pleasure to be with you all. Caroline and I love coming, um, and it's a great joy to see you. So many friendly faces again and renew old acquaintances, and it's just a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Shall we pray? Well, Father, as we come to your word, we do want to ask you to open your word up to us. Father, we know that you have no difficulty in speaking to us, but we do have some difficulty in listening to you. And Lord, we want to ask you that you would clean out our ears, that you'd give us hearts that are receptive and soft. And Lord, that you'd enable us to understand what you want to say to each one of us individually, but also to us as the body of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. And what I'm going to talk to you about this morning is to be found, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 2, and then I'm then going to go on and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And most of the time, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, I think, this morning. But I do just want to start um, in Ephesians chapter 2 with you just by way of introduction. And I think this morning I would be fairly safe to say that I'm going to tell you things which you already know, which are basically very simple, which you're very familiar with, um, and which in a sense, are, we are so familiar with them and we know them so well that actually it's difficult to, um, to make them part of our lives because we're so familiar with them, they just pass over us very easily. Um, but actually, this is one of those areas where it is a work of the Holy Spirit to establish this in our lives. And later on, we'll look at a verse that says, by one spirit, you were all baptized into one body. If it was easy to be in the body of Christ, it would not be a work of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that it takes the Holy Spirit to baptize us into the body of Christ is an indication of how difficult it is for us to be the body of Christ, despite how easy it sounds. Um, so that's where we're going to go, and I'm going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If you want a, a title for this morning, the title, I think, is to be found probably in um, uh, verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2, where it says that we're fellow citizens with the saints, God's household. So I'm going to talk about being God's household, what it's like to be in the family of God as God's household. I want to just take a run at that from verse 10, if you would with me. So uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore remember that you, the Gentiles of the flesh, are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope 
and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law and the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in the body to God through the cross, by it having put away, put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and to peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone from whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And Paul is talking really in this section of Ephesians about the wonderful work which God has done in really bringing Gentiles and Jewish believers together in Christ and making them one in Christ. And I want to just take you very quickly through that before we come to the matter of the body of Christ. So I want to start at the, right at, with the fundamental principle that we started the reading with. You are his workmanship. You know, actually, God has created us. He's caused us to be born again of the Spirit of God because he has things to do with us, individually and collectively. So he wants to make you his workmanship individually, but also he wants to make you his workmanship as the body of Christ together. Quite often, I think, in the, in the evangelical church, we think very much in individual terms. We don't think of the body of Christ very much. But this matter of being his workmanship applies at both levels. It's not only individual, it's collectively as the body as well. Um, and, of course, Paul is talking about this matter of Jews and Gentiles, isn't he? And he's saying there in verse 12 that uh, he's really writing to Gentiles, saying you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. You know, as Gentiles, and most of us here will be Gentiles, we have been brought up in a country that has uh, no culture of knowing God. We don't have a covenant as a nation with God. We're very separate from God. God has found us in our great ignorance and brought us to know him in Christ. And that's a wonderful thing when the Lord does that. And he, he sort of snatches us from the depths of our ignorance and reveals himself to us in the most remarkable way 
And, you know, and there is no greater miracle, really, than someone coming to know Christ. And as Gentiles, he's, he's saved us out of our ignorance. And it says, you who are, for, who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it is the blood of Christ which has enabled us to come to the knowledge of God. And then it goes on in verse 14 to say, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law and commandments contained in the ordinances. Then it goes on in verse 16 to say that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the requirements of the law. And for the Jew, salvation is found in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in just the same way that it is for you. There is no difference. Salvation for the Jew is only to be found in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the fulfillment of the law. Because he is the fulfillment of the law. You cannot fulfill the law outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Jewish believer is brought into fellowship with God. And there is no difference between the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. Both are reconciled into the body of Christ through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is no difference. There is therefore no virtue in trying to be Jewish, Gentile. Gentile, did you hear me? There is no virtue in trying to be Jewish. Because there is no difference. The Jewish believer and the Gentile believer are both reconciled through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The dividing barrier is broken down. Both are reconciled in the same way. So in verse 17 it says, He preached peace to those who were far away. Gentiles, in other words. And peace to those who were near. Jews. Both received the same gospel of peace. Through him we have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are fellow citizens with the saints, God's household. And the Lord is building his household together. Well, of course, I'm sure that, uh, that you have very little trouble and difficulty with Jewish believers. In the same way that I get on extremely well with Caroline's family who live in Florida. And the reason you have no difficulty with Jewish believers is by and large you don't see them. You don't meet them. I see very little of Caroline's family who live in Florida. Actually we're going out there in a few weeks time, Caroline and I for a holiday with them. And actually we get on very well with them when we're together. But, but distance makes relationships very easy. So now actually, those who you never see, you get on very well with. You know, if you want to get on with your relatives, get them to emigrate. 
you know, you'll find that your relationships are much better with those you don't meet. The real problem is those you have to live with, those you share the same household with. And of course, that was the issue which Paul was addressing when he wrote to the Corinthians. So when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he was really trying to teach them how to get on with one another. Um, the Corinthians are a wonderful church, really. Everything is out in the open in Corinth. You know, they do everything to excess. So when they fall out, they quarrel. You know, nothing is hidden. Everything is revealed. So when you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you just get it all, really. It's all out there. You see it all. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, and let's look at what Paul has to say on the subject of living with one another. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's the verse I was referring to earlier on when I said this matter of being in the body of Christ is so difficult that it takes the Holy Spirit to bring that possibility about. By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. And I think it's really interesting the way Paul puts these things together. You see, what Paul is saying is, is actually he has made one Jews and Gentiles. You know, what, what, if you were to name two groups that don't naturally get on very easily, Jews and Gentiles would sort of spring pretty close to the top of the list, wouldn't they? Jews and Gentiles are not going to find it easy to be together. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit which has allowed them both to be so. And that was why I wanted to start there in Ephesians, really. And I also wanted to start in Ephesians with something that you would find quite easy as well, before we get on to the more difficult things. And then he just picks another couple of groups that are going to find it really difficult to, get, to, get, to be together. And so Paul says, slaves and free you know, I mean, we don't have slavery in this country, but I guess if we did, we'd find it pretty difficult to socialise with slaves if we were free. And, of course, it used to be the case in this country that when we had a very structured society with big houses and so on that had servants, the servants would go to one church and the, and the uh, I don't know what to call them, really, the... the uh, Masters, that's the right word, thank you. The masters would go to a different church. Quite often the servants would go to a non-conformist church and the masters would go to the Church of England. And the two were separate. That's how difficult it is for slaves and free to be together. And, and what, what the Lord is saying really through Paul here is that the work of the Holy Spirit makes it possible for both groups to be one. Isn't that wonderful? And he wants them to be one but he looks for our cooperation in being one. 
And if you were to look on to verse 27, he says this, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So if this matter of being united in the body is going to really work, we need to be individually set to be united. You know, we need to be individually ready for it. It's not going to just happen collectively. Individually, you have to be willing for the cost of being part of the body of Christ. Right, well, what Paul is going to do, really, is talk about this matter of being united in the body of Christ. And he's going to deal with a number of problems that the Corinthian church have that he highlights in his letter to the Corinthians. And he really talks under three headings in the verses which follow. So I'll give you the three headings and then we'll just go through and look at um, each one of these headings or principles. So the first principle is this. It's in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 14. And the first principle is the body is not one member but many. Okay, that's the first principle. And then you get a few verses which just discuss that principle. The second principle that Paul's going to talk about is related to the first one. And it's this in, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 18, where Paul says, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And then you get a few verses which talk about the implications of that. And then we get the third principle, which is this. Uh, and it's in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 22. The members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Okay, and then he talks about that. So what I'm going to do is just talk about each one of those principles, look at the way in which he opens them up, and talk about the problems in the Corinthian church related to those principles. So the first one, then, is this. The body is not one member, but many. So just read the verses that relate to that principle. So starting at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not a part of the body... Is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. Is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Now, what Paul is saying is that the body of Christ is comprised of all sorts of different people which God uses in different ways. Um, and that is, that is the case. Now, it's an obvious principle. Um, it's a straightforward, simple principle which we would all agree with. I mean, it's mum and apple pie, isn't it, if I can put it like that? And that's the problem with most of this teaching, is it's mum and apple pie. So what's good to look at is where the difficulty arises. So keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 12 and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And you'll begin to see the difficulty. 
Why does Paul need to teach on this? It's so blindingly obvious. Well, the difficulty is because we're people. And we all really have pride of life, and all of this is dealing with our pride of life. So what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Well, verse 10. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you may be made complete and of the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? You see, what has happened is that in the Corinthian church, there have been a number of people who have been teaching. And they all have their favourite teacher. And so, of course, what they know, and of course I know this for myself, my favourite teacher is the best teacher. And because he's the best teacher and I recognise that, and you don't, then you've got a problem. And really, if only you recognise that my favourite teacher was the best, you'd be a much better person. <laughs> and actually, we're like that. Of course, in, in Corinth, they had a limited number of teachers available to them. You have an infinite number of teachers available to you on the internet and so on, who you can follow, listen to, who nearly always is your favourite because they say the things you already think and already agree with, and just sort of backs up your view. And you know that if only the rest of the church felt just as passionately about Mr. So-and-so's teaching as you do, the church would be a much better place. And so you go around and try and persuade everyone that Mr. So-and-so is better than Mrs. So-and-so, or whatever it happens to be. Um, and Paul explains to them what is happening. You know, why are there these different teachers? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then Paul will explain what all these different teachers are about. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through which you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, that's Paul, planted, Apollos watered, and God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to their own labour. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's building. This applies not only to teachers, but in these days we have lots of means of communication and I've been in churches many, many years ago. Um, I was in a church and I think the most commonly used expression in the two years that I was there was, if only you would read this book, dot, dot, dot. And then it was followed by when the writer of the book actually visited the town, 
If only you would attend this meeting, dot, dot, dot. If only you would, and you felt like completing this sentence, if only you would be like me, then wouldn't life be wonderful? You know, actually, this is pride of life. It's pride of life. I mean, the point is, God has put these various teachers in place, each with a different purpose, with a different emphasis. Nobody gets it right. You need to be checking against the word of God because there is no one who is, who is teaching everything correctly. You need to, teach, to check against the word of God for yourselves. And my observation over the 30-odd years since we were in that particular church is that where I find those who follow a particular teacher and go everywhere that person speaks and listen to everything that person has to say, do not get into the word of God for themselves. They sermon taste and they don't grow in maturity at all. The only way to grow in maturity is to allow God to give the growth. And the only way that God will give the growth is through getting into the word of God for yourself. And the purpose of preaching the word is simply to keep you on the right track. As you feed on the word of God for yourself, preaching the word will just keep you on the right track. It will just bring that bit of correction here and there that's necessary. Just help you understand things. But it is God who gives the growth. It is God who feeds through his word himself. Not because we read a certain book or attend a certain meeting or whatever. That is not what gives growth. It is God who gives growth. And rest assured, each one of these teachers will be accountable to God for themselves. You don't need to worry about it. You know, the Lord can deal with his servants. Learn to keep your hands off them. Allow the Lord to deal with it. Well, what follows from this basic principle? Well, there in verse 15, we find certain things which sort of follow from it. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. If it, is it for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. Is it for this reason any less a part of the body? You see, the problem is that because we are different and diverse, and perhaps there is a greater emphasis on one thing than on another, we feel excluded. If you're in a foot, if you're a foot, and the only thing anyone values around here is hands, you feel somehow that you're a waste of time. Who needs feet when everybody wants hands? So you feel excluded. And the result of feeling excluded is you chafe against who you are because here you are a foot and you want to be a hand. So you chafe to be a hand. Actually, at the end of this passage, Paul talks about ministries in the church and I'm pretty sure he's thinking about that when he writes these things. You know, we're in an evangelical church. It's in the title of your church, isn't it? Your Court Farm Evangelical Church. So my guess is you value evangelists quite a lot. Maybe you're not an evangelist. Do you feel somehow, if only I was an evangelist, then I would be exactly what the Lord wants? And it just turns out, actually, you've got more of a pastoral ministry. 
And the Lord has put you in place because he wants you to get alongside people and help people. So you see, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. I mean, Apollos probably was pretty hopeless at planting. And my guess is, Paul was pretty hopeless at watering. You know, the two were needed, both were needed. Evangelists and pastors are both needed. If you're, if you're more of a pastor, don't chafe against it. Just because you're in an evangelical church and evangelists are valued. Be what the Lord wants you to be. And allow people to be what the Lord wants them to be. Allow them to be what the Lord wants them to be. And be prepared to be what the Lord wants you to be. So the second matter follows on from the first. So we got to verse 18. (coughs) But now the Lord has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. You see how this picks up the theme. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So this basic principle is that God puts you in the place that he wants you to be with the type of ministry which he wants you to have. It's not your choice. I'm sorry, we'd love it to be our choice, but it's not your choice. God does what he wants to do. Well, if you notice, this is the reverse. The illustrations now are the reverse of the previous illustrations. So the the former illustrations were, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. The illustration now is, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Okay, now why might we say, I have no need of you? Well, I would suggest to you that there's a couple of reasons why we say, I have no need of you. The first reason why we might say it is because we feel that we are totally capable. You know, you have this idea that you can do everything and that you don't really don't need the help of those around because you can do everything. I know it's not a very British thing to say, is it? But we quite often think that. We quite often think it. And, of course, you might think it because you've grown up in an environment, actually I grew up in this sort of environment, so I understand it quite well, where maybe your parents were teachers, my parent was a headmaster, my father was a headmaster, and they're desperate for you to do your best. I mean, they're really well motivated, they want you to do your best, and so you come home, this happened to my sister, not me, you come home and you've scored 98%, and she genuinely did, in an exam, And so your father says to you, what happened to the other 2%? (laughs) And instantly, you feel a failure. And you know that success is only when you are fully 100% capable and need no support from anyone else. And so if you need anyone else's help, it indicates you're a bit of a failure, really. So you're reluctant to admit to that, so thank you very much, I don't need your help. Okay, I can, that's one reason. Because we've grown up in a way where we equate help from others as failure. It doesn't work like that. 
Actually, it doesn't work like that. If the whole body were a hand, how is it going to walk? It's ridiculous. So that's one reason why we might feel uh, that we have no need of you. Another reason is because we get out of balance. So in our understanding of the work of God, we become unbalanced. And I'm sorry to pick on evangelists, um, but this tends to be, in evangelical churches, this tends to be where the out of balance comes. Um, so one of the things which I do when I'm not here is occasionally I'm involved in leading intercession meetings. And, and sometimes we have men come along who are really evangelists. And quite often as we're praying about the nation that we might be peaceably and godly governed and for righteous legislation, they will come once, and, but they won't come again because their view will be actually we should be praying about people being saved because there is nothing else other than evangelism which matters. I have no need of you because the only thing we're required to do in the church is evangelism. We're not required to do anything else. Actually, that just isn't true. You know, the church is, has lots of things which it is required to do apart from evangelism. <clears throat> and some churches have more emphasis on evangelism and others have more emphasis on other things, as the Lord has led them. And actually the church where Caroline and I worship has a, a tremendous emphasis on helping the needy and the poor. Actually, we're pretty terrible at evangelism, it's the truth of it, and we long to be better. You know, but the Lord has given us in the church where we are um, the sort of work which brings in the poor and the needy, the tramps come in, and that sort of thing. And it's very different from a church that has big outreach. Well, we can't say, I have no need of you. We're part of the body of Christ. And all these things matter. Whether we feel particularly drawn to them or not. Well, the third matter, then. Uh, and this starts in verse 22. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. So this is dealing with the issue that some parts of the body are weaker than others. We often like to pretend that they're not, but we know they are really. Some parts are weaker than others. And they're necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honourable, on these we bestow more abundant honour. And those less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has composed the body, giving more abundant honour to the members that lacked it. Therefore, there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care of one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honoured, all members rejoice with it. Actually, if you just think about your natural body, you do bestow considerable care on some parts of your body um, because they are weaker. I mean, your toes... You bestow quite a lot of care on your toes. You don't think about your toes very much, do you? You know, nobody goes around thinking about their toes, but we're all quite careful to make sure that we're wearing the right footwear, you know, when we go into a situation where your toes might get damaged. You know, you go onto a building site, you wear steel-capped toes. 
Actually, when you do stub your toe, your whole body cannot think about anything <laughs> other than your toe. Despite the fact that ten minutes earlier, you didn't give any thought to even having toes. <laughs> and this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that there are some parts of our body which we don't even think about at all, and yet are absolutely vital. And when they get damaged, the whole body suffers as a consequence. Um, now, just read on in Corinthians, and you'll get, you'll get to really the sort of things Paul has in mind when he's doing all this teaching. So, Paul goes on to say in verse 27... Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues, and so on. So what Paul has in mind when he talks about hands, eyes, feet, and so on are these ministries in the church, which is why I've been talking about them. Some of these ministries are very visible and prominent and everybody sees them. They are the parts of the body which are immediately visible to everybody. So apostles, prophets, teachers, and I would include evangelists, although it isn't in this particular list. Amongst those are ministries which everybody sees and appreciates and so on, they're up front, aren't they? It's very difficult to be a teacher if you never say anything. You know, it's, it's just a bit of a problem. You know, it's part of being a teacher is you have to say things so everybody sees you. And that's true of all of those ministries. And, of course, they naturally receive lots of honour. You know, we naturally give honour to apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists. That's why everybody wants to be one. Really? Because they're very visible. There are some of these ministries, and ministry just means area of service, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about an area in which you serve, um, which are less visible. And I would say miracles and gifts of healing. And the reason for that is because actually... In those sort of situations where a miracle is needed or where healing is needed, normally you have to pray about it, you have to talk to the person, you have to spend time with them. You know, these things are not just instantly done out in the open. They're done over a period of time, praying and seeking the Lord, and quite often it involves people getting right over things, and that's a very private matter, or certainly should be. And so... Those who are involved in miracles and gifts of healing are not going to be as visible as those who are standing at the front and teaching. And then there are those, these areas of ministry which are virtually invisible. And then we come on to helps and administrations. You know, the last thing the person who needs help is, you know, the last thing they need is to be standing at the front, really. You know, somebody who needs help requires it in private. And they re what they mean need for help, you know, the person who has a ministry of helps, is somebody who can bring someone into the presence of God and enable them to find God because God is going to be their help. This isn't just buying the shopping for Mrs. Miggins. This is 
bringing Mrs. Miggins into the presence of God so that she can find God's way through in a particular situation. I mean, Caroline and I were used yesterday, we were talking to a couple whose marriage is falling apart. And we spent three hours listening to them, talking about their marriage and, and just giving them an opportunity to talk. It's absolutely vital that that is done in private, that nobody sees. I mean, I'm happy to tell you here because you're not in the church in which they came from. Um, but I certainly wouldn't mention it in the church where they came from because that's their private affairs, isn't it? Administrations... Um, you may wonder what administrations are. They're really an administrator is a navigator. So somebody who has a ministry of admi administration is navigating through um, difficult, troubled waters. We see very little ministries of administration in churches, and that's why churches go aground so often, is because we don't navigate through. When I was training, I, um, I worked on ships, I'm a naval architect by training, and I spent uh, one night uh, on the bridge of a ship which was doing navigation training, and I was just observing what was happening. And we were going through the Straits of Dover at top speed, and this was a frigate, so it's a very fast ship, travelling down through the Straits of Dover at top speed. And it was the middle of the night, and there was the navigator with the radar out in front of him, and he was steering through all these ships. It was amazing to watch because there are so many ships in the Dover Straits as he steered his way through. Everybody in the ship was asleep except for the navigator on the bridge, the captain on the bridge, and me, who had just had the privilege of watching these two avoid collision. That's a ministry of administration. The rest of the ship completely oblivious to it all fast asleep, had no idea how close we got to some of these ships that we missed. Um, we need administrations, but you're not going to get any credit for it. Okay, you're not going to, you know, if you have a ministry of administration, you won't get any credit for it. But just like your toe, when it gets stamped on and it goes wrong, everybody will know because the ship will go aground, and it'll go aground in a big way. So we need, we need you. you know, if you have a hidden work of service, you are desperately needed. Um, actually, Paul is also talking about those who are weak. He's not only talking about those who are hidden, he's also talking about those who are weak, and there are amongst us those who are weak. And that is inevitable. There were those who are weak in the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians 8. If you turn there, you'll find about those who are weak in the, one, in the Corinthian church. So Paul also has these in mind, who are weak brothers and sisters. Concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he's not known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is 
no God but one. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all th- are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now. So these were people who'd been saved out of idolatry and were used to eating food dedicated to idols with a certain degree of reverence. And that was what they'd been saved from. So he's talking about them, and he says they eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, for their conscience being weak is defiled. You see, they've, they've been brought up with this, so this is something that has stuck with them. They, when they eat food, which has come from the idol's temple, their conscience pricks them, because that's what they've been accustomed to doing. Then in verse 8 he says, But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse nor the better if we eat nor if we don't eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, what Paul is saying is, live in such a way which gives consideration to this brother who has been saved out of this situation. Live in a way that gives consideration to him. Don't cause him to stumble. Because he's weak. Because of where he's come from. His background. Live with consideration to those who are weak. Well, I think that that really covers everything. So I just want to draw things to a conclusion with this verse in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. You know, we can be very arrogant. We, we need to just build one another up and accept that not everybody is the same as you. God uses different people in different ways. There is no perfect teacher. God uses different teachers in different ways. Paul planted, Apollos watered. It's God who gives the growth. And all men are accountable to God, not to me. Praise the Lord. Shall we pray? Well, Father, we know that these things are very simple, really. And yet they get right to the heart of our attitudes. And Lord, we want to ask that by one spirit we would all be baptized into one body. Father, we're pleading with you really for that work of the Holy Spirit to give us grace to accept one another. Lord, to give us grace to allow you to use us in the way you want. Lord, to give us grace to accept the help of others. To give us grace to accept the fact that we need others. Lord, to open our eyes to value those who are different from ourselves. Lord, we'd ask you for an ability to to value the churches which have a different emphasis from us and to learn from them. Lord, we long to see the body of Christ built up. Father, we're so grateful uh, that your son died not only for us individually, 
but to build a body of Christ, that there might be a bride for the Lord Jesus. Father, our desire is deal with our pride of life so that we become willing to accept those that are different from us. Amen.